Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. Uh, for those of you who have subbed to the YouTube channel in the last few weeks uh, on the straight off the heels of those filmed interviews, um, this is a a more laid-back research vehicle for the History of Roadrunner Records documentary that I'm producing. Um, so bear with us, it's a long conversation, but it's nice and detailed about some of the nuances of the music industry, if that's the kind of shit you're into. Uh, but yeah, just check out previ previous videos and you can see the kind of shit that I do. Anywho, this is a conversation with a Mr. Austin Stevens. Uh, Austin worked in the sales arm of Roadrunner Records in the 21st century, uh, and he's seen both sides of the Warner acquisition in 2012, or the completion of said acquisition in, in 2012. So this one's super interesting. It's one of those where my neck now hurts because I keep throwing my head back and laughing. Um, but yeah, you'll enjoy this one. One, two, fuck shit up. Sometimes need to constantly reframe why I'm doing this whole fucking thing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, because every day I learn more and more why Roadrunner is a big deal. But to the people that were there, people who were, who literally experienced it and have a reverence for it, I'll never understand. I have to ask the question, why is it a big deal? And why is it important to you? Why is it important that um, we document these things and um, not allow Monty to retire until he completes his knowledge transfer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, you know, I think for a lot of people, like at least maybe like industry-wise, it was... Uh, you know, the indie label that makes good, you know, right? Like the, you know, the 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 little guy that, um, you know, became, that played with the big boys, you know? <laughs> um, but also, I mean, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm at the later end of this. Like you've had so many people on, like you've seen what people went on to, right? And like just the talent that got turned out of the staff from that label, right? You know, like beyond just like the musicians and, and the artists that came out of it, um, you know, just what everybody went on to. It seems like anybody that was there, I mean, some people went in completely different paths for sure, mm -hmm. but there's so many people that kind of went on to do their own thing um, or ended up at other places and have been incredibly successful. Uh, and I think that kind of really speaks to just like, the way they curated talent there um, and, and also threw you to the wolves to, <laughs> to learn. And, and you, you got some really great chops and it was, you know, I, I, you know, I do come from the later era of it, you know, like the last 10 years of, of, of the label um, or 12 years of the label. Um, and there was something to, how to articulate it um it's hard isn't it <laughs> yeah I, just you know I, you you got the best of both worlds because you were you felt like you were working at an indie but we were also there like you know when the mergers happened and when we were playing with the late the majors and whatnot and like what we learned from that experience what we learned from working with those teams um and 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 took into it but kind of never really losing the respect mm. of like our indie peers and whatnot. Um, and I think that was really important to a lot of folks there. And, and it, it was a really strange rope to, to walk, right? Because on some level you have the folks like on the indie side and they could easily write you off. Um, and then you're also trying to get the attention of your new partners, like, mm. you know, on the major side and, um, you know, there's something to be said for 
the hands-off approach and that they let us do our own things, but also, you know, we wanted to be taking advantage of the machine that sure. that is as well, or in the influence that those that those partners could divvy out, but also keeping our indie cred. And it's, it is a fine line to walk. So It's also, I think, it's so innovative in the cultural impact. And the example I always say is nine nut jobs in jumpsuits knocked X off the top of the charts that week. I can't remember who it is. Kathy actually emailed me and said, oh, it was this guy that was knocked off the charts. But I think oh, I, I mean, we could save that story for later because uh, that's uh, or we could do it now. But it, it was the game was the artist we knocked off. Um, but yeah, I can I can give you that. That's a long I mean, it's not a long story, but it's, you know, a lot of details of that story that that, that would definitely come in. Uh, we'll get to it quite early because yeah. it'll be at the start of your tenure. But I think yeah. the, the point is it's having such extreme outlier personnel and and melods and, and people who are traditionally disenfranchised and it's almost cliche to say but people who are traditionally disenfranchised being empowered in such a fashion it's it's so striking and so reverent that i think we're now where we describe it we're at a point where vocabulary fails us because it never happened again does yeah. that make sense it was just like it it was so poignant and the fire was so hot and it's just not happened since so it's no one's referred back to it enough to then try and figure out exactly what happened and therefore where it could have gone and how it could have continued, I think. No, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I think maybe the the closest to that is, you know, your sub pop or your, your epitaph, right. Mm. Uh, on, and, and them having like some level of, of that success too. I mean, you can't like discount like the offspring and, and, and things like and major records like that, that came through um, those as well. But you also had a lot of those artists, like, you know, they jump ship pretty quickly and went straight to major. So, mm. you know, I think there's probably something to, and, and again, you but know, remember this offspring and late night is like pop punk that got sexy. It got American pie right. films. It got, it, it penetrated mainstream culture in a way. Yeah, that Slipknot totally, never totally. did. Slipknot were always ugly fuckers. And yeah. so were all the bands that followed them and they still had a seat at the table. Uh, Absolutely. But you know, and there's been a sentiment that I've noticed on this about like Slipknot would have been Slipknot no matter what. And sure. I, 70% of me completely agrees with that statement, but there is 30% of me that is like, you know, I think what Roadrunner was able to do for them was, and, and it was definitely, I think a goal of the band, certainly something I, 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 I heard tangentially like through Monty and, and, and other folks was they wanted to like clown loves the idea of something that heavy and dark mm -hmm. permeating into pop culture and finding a bigger and bigger and bigger audience. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what we were able to do was amplify that on some level and get creative alongside them um, yeah. and really expand that out more. Um, and I mean, they also did it themselves too, just in like their musical journey and how they grew. Uh, Cause you know, those first three records are really kind of very, I mean, really every record is very different from the next, I would actually say for them, but those mm. first three are like largely like sonically different, just the songwriting, the the actual sound and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And um, it's, it's, it's good to get another tributary off that, 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 that stream of Slipknot or Slipknot and would have been Slipknot. Where does Rodana come in? Because it is not because why the fuck should we care about a label? Because when the artist is the one that ha is the thing that makes these things happen, and there is an answer to that question, and that, that's what this whole thing is about. So tell me how you, you 
got your foot in the door of the label. How did this this nightmarish career path <laughs> commence? Uh, nightmarish and dream come true all at the same time. So there you go. Good thing I'm a horror movie fan. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I was I was an intern. Um, it, it, that said, I was I was I lived in Atlanta. Um, there were regionals at the mm. time, right? Um, one of my best friends in, in Atlanta was working part-time for the Southeastern Regional in, in Atlanta out of the red offices. Um, he was like, you know, I get, I don't get paid anything doing this. I got to mm-hmm. get a real job. Are you going to school for this? Don't you, you, you should take over for me. I'll just tell my boss. Like, it's just <laughs> kind of like that, right? And so also speaks to the indie, my, like, you know, the, the way the indies are, right? Like, you know, you just you know, somebody and all that. And I was, I was going to school for it. So I, you know, at some point I was going to need to do an internship anyway. So I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. And I get paid sweet. Um, so he like set me up with his boss who she was actually working down in Florida at the time. And she was great. Um, uh, her name is Stacy Tompkin. Uh, and, uh, and there was like a radio regional there uh, as well. Um, who was uh, like seldom ever in that office. <laughs> so what what year really? In. So this is, I would have started in October of 2000. October 2000, okay. Yeah, as, as the intern. Um, so I want to say the universal, so I was, I was there, I was the intern for about a year and a half. And in that time period is when the universal merger happened. Mm-hmm. So we all moved out of the red office and then went over let, to the let, universal office. Let, let's, let's, let's. Take a step back just for the yep. minute. So what's the structure here? You, you said there's a Southeast regional. So my, yep. my, my, I need to do my homework more on the, on the office locations. Cause I know yeah. there's, I know New York moves about five times in its tenure. There's an LA office. Yep. There's a bunch of international offices, but I don't know what else is going on in the U S. So, so in the U S there was four offices. There was the New York office. Mm-hmm. There was the LA office. Mm-hmm. There was a Chicago office that i believe was also based probably at red like whoever our distributor was at the time that's we would have office space with them and then there was an atlanta office um and so i was i was there in the red office what was the capability Uh, of those two regional offices i'm calling them the two (laughs) non-flagship site offices were they was it st- the same as the other ones? There was an A and R. There was a sales. There was no, no. It was way leaner. So New York was New York. Uh, in, in LA, I think you got a, a good just of that from Kathy. Um, but there's obviously more staff there. You you yeah. have more like probably your sync people and stuff like that over mm-hmm. in LA because of the the film business and whatnot there and the gaming business there. Um, so Chicago and Atlanta were very small. It was like the the sales regional. And the promo person, uh, right. and in the, at least in Atlanta, Chicago I would probably assume was it was Scott Stiglitz in Chicago, uh, or actually, uh, yeah, Chicago. Um, he was based there, and I, I believe Laura Bender might have been the promo person at the time, um, working with him. Um, and so, kind of, yep. These these also are responsible for the perpetual, uh, the perpetuated presence of the label in these territories. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you why. So, and it's actually funny that Stiglish was in Chicago. It's because he lived there, and he, but he was taking regular trips to Minneapolis. Most regional offices would have been in Minneapolis right. uh, because that's where Best Buy and Target headquarters are. So you're selling to Best Buy and Target. Atlanta, 
you're selling to every you're selling to everybody in like kind of that southeast so i had like a we had a host of indies ac was down there alliance which is still down. it's not in atlanta but it was in miami mm-hmm. um so it was like kind of atlanta was a nice central location because it was like a music hub um yeah. and it touched like a few different accounts and there was like a lot of like regional chains as well like music city hastings um things like that that, sure. that you would touch as well right that makes sense Oh, I love this shit. <laughs> and, uh, and and actually, at some point, I took on Circuit City, which was like in Virginia. So it was just, you know, it was a central location because there's a lot of chains uh, right. in, in that. So that's why Atlanta was there, uh, was kind of central to all that. Minneapolis would have been the home for the other stuff. And then obviously the, the hubs with New York being the main office in the U.S. and in L.A. So your role is presumably to check numbers with Red at this time. Is it, yeah, as an intern, I was doing a lot of the uh, the stock checks. I was doing, I was calling stores when mm-hmm. bands were on the road, like all over the region, making sure they had stock, making sure they had what they needed. Like if they were coming through town, sending them posters, like sending them everything, just to hang stuff up in the store. Um, if they didn't have anything, letting them know they're coming to town and, you know, order one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all that good stuff. And then um, you know, any, any other projects that they would kind of give me along the way. Right. Okay. That's interesting now. It's being like the lone, the, the, the lone vanguard of Roadrunner in the, uh, yeah. in that particular region. That's and crazy. I was totally a punk guy. So like, <laughs> you know, me coming into it, I was like, like the guy I took over from, he was definitely, he was a metal guy first and foremost, and like mm-hmm. definitely dove, it, but also was way into like punk and, and all that stuff too. Um, I was definitely early days, like punk guy, like, you know, my brother got me into Metallica and Guns N' Roses and all that. And then, you know, I kind of found Pantera on my own and White Zombie and all of that. And then one day, you know, you're 15, you meet a girl and she's into punk rock and, you know, you, you it. abandon it all. And you're like, okay. <laughs> so when I started like there, I was kind of like, I mean, I used, I grew up watching Headbangers Ball and all that. So like, I knew these bands, but I didn't necessarily have that same association of like the brand, mm-hmm. the label that they were on. But like, right. you know, I'm like looking through, I'm a nerd though, right? Like, so as soon as I walk in the door and I'm like, three CDs, you know, you're like, it's like, I need to figure out everything that's going on with this label if I'm going to work here. And, you know, so you're putting on everything. And I was like, I, I like Sepultura. I remember them, typo negative. I, I didn't realize they were label mates. And, you know, Biohazard, oh, and like, which was probably one of my bigger ones, like back in those days. Um, so, and then, you know, learning, and then the New Guard, right? Um, it, with like Slipknot, like I knew Slipknot because you couldn't really get away from them on that first record. But like, yeah. I, I did not know a song until mm-hmm. I started as an intern. Um, and then I listen to it and, you know, you're just kind of like, oh shit, well, no wonder this is so big. Right. Um, and diving in and, you know, yeah. So just going through like all of that stuff and just kind of learning everything and even the history, like, you know, going through, like, I kind of missed beer factory. So getting to like reeducate myself on that, you know, machine head, I kind of missed those first, you know, mm-hmm. few records. So reeducating myself on, on that and, and all that. So I definitely went down like an extreme wormhole and became like, uh, tried and true metal fan very quickly again <laughs> try doing that try doing the exact same thing 20 years later mate yeah yeah it's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> so you you're going you're, you're there you're enjoying it and then the universal thing happens was it all steady sailing up until that point uh 
It was. And like, you know, it's, you know, the thing I was, I was going to school for this. I was going for like a music industry um, degree. And, you know, the one thing they would always tell you is like, it's all, you know, like more so it's like, we can teach you shit, but like, it all comes down to just what, who you, it comes down to like the relationships you build. Um, so I really took that to heart. So like, yeah, I mean, I was in, I was in there, like, you know, I made friends with everybody in that office. I'm still friends with everybody in that office. Some, uh, at least one of them works at, at, with me or worked at Warner as well. And I has since retired, but you know, we're still, we still occasionally hit each other over Facebook and all that good stuff. Um, and, and, you know, stayed really close with that crew for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then going over, it was just like, all of a sudden you like, have to do that all over again. Um, but everyone was like, so nice. Like, I mean, the music industry is really small, so mm-hmm. it's like, it certainly does not pay off to be, uh, unkind in the industry. Like, so you run across more like really nice people and, 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 and stuff than, than, you know, the industry might, uh, lead you to believe. <laughs> sure, sure. So when, when Universal bought the label and they upped that Atlanta mm-hmm. office, was that, a strategy to just centralize everything or were they thinking oh no we've got we're universal we've already got resources in all these places no and and i think it was kind of said in there right um that you know leor had kind of said it was hands off right let them do their thing they know what they're doing mm-hmm. so at least from our level like they wanted us in there they wanted their own people in there so we were in there um and we worked with the idj team so like mm-hmm. you know they had like there was like always like a, it's like every two weeks there was like a new release meeting and you would go through and you would kind of sit with all of the sales leads at the right. distributor and all of that. And I would sit in on the IDJ one um, when that time came. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we would do all of that. Right. Like, so I should probably back up. So the Stacy, who was my boss at the time, she left about maybe six months into the universal merger okay. to take a job as a regional in Atlanta for Warner Brothers, for Warner, Warner Brothers records. Yeah. Um, and so I was just kind of like, and she, so she had told me, Hey, I'm taking this job. The Roaders also decided not to pay interns anymore. So I have to let you go. <laughs> and I was like, well, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on you're not paying me that much. Like, can I just stay? And like, I'm getting internship credit for this. Like I got another job. Like I need this for school credit. Like, can I just stay on and do what I'm doing and just work with somebody else? Like she's like, Oh, uh, you know, let me check. And like, so she called her boss who ended up being my boss, Michael Cantor, um, uh, who was like the head of sales for almost my entire time there. Um, and uh, and Mark Shapiro, who was also our, our director of field marketing, mm-hmm. uh, and he was also an in, he 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 came up through like internships and all that stuff in the industry. So I think he had a soft spot for me. Um, <laughs> and Michael, I think, was a little taken aback by the fact that I was willing to work for free. <laughs> and he was like, "Could this guy do your job?" <laughs> and she her response was, "It's not brain surgery, and he's great." Um, <laughs> so. You know, I think they, they did interview some people, but it was really weird. I was still in school. I was I was almost done, but not quite finished. And they legit like flew me to New York to interview. And like, and they they I mean, and this was like maybe a month or two after she had left. Okay. So it was like a little bit of a courting period because they did talk to some other people and all of that. Um 
And one, I think they knew they could get me really cheap because I was fresh out of school. Yep. Um, they knew I had a good head on my shoulders and I knew the company, I, I knew the culture and mm-hmm. I knew like the company. Cause I, at that point had been there, you know, about getting close to two years. Sure. Um, and yeah, I think they just really liked the fact that like, you know, you paid your dues a little bit. I, 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 I cheated a little bit. Cause like I went up, I flew in. I, I mean, I legitimately was there for probably eight hours, like in New York, I flew into New York. And they got me out of there. Um, and I went in. I Cantor, I think, had already made up his mind, like that I was this guy. And, and Mark had been there, like, to, to just be like, were those the two inter- interviewers? Always so the, I, they were like my bosses, basically, because I was already kind of doing the gig on some level sure. for them. And I started to meet with Jonas. Um, and I go into Jonas's office, and like, you know, he does the interview and all that. And like, I mean, this shows you how green I was. But he was like. Uh, you know, I, the only question I even remember is like, he's like, do you consider yourself a tenacious person? And I was like, you mean like crazy? Yeah. And he was like, do you know what tenacious means? And I was like, I do not. <laughs> um, and I, when did I mean, that tenacious think, D record come out? When yeah, yeah, it wasn't out, out yet. It wasn't out yet. Um, but he was, he, I think he just thought that was funny. Um, but I, I did cheat a little bit because I was like waiting to go to the airport. I was like legitimately standing outside of the building and I saw him in Cantor walk out and they just hired a new radio regional down there too who was also a young guy right. and uh i heard jonah say to him i was like looks like atlanta will be run by a bunch of rookies and i was like oh sweet i got the job <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't find out until like a few days later but <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> um, so but yeah so it was good but uh, to go back to what you're saying like um yeah, so we were pretty ingrained with the team, but they they were always really respectful. Like, you know, I, I would even say a bit of a, I had a bit of a mentor down in Atlanta with the IDJ ref, this, this guy, Rod Gunther, who was mm-hmm. fantastic. He, he, uh, he really was hands-off, but he was always very much like, you know, if you got questions, if you need anything, you know, let me know, right? But he always yeah. like, let me do my thing. And, um, and they were always like super respectful that way. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to to see what informed that the decision to be so hands off. I mean, it's obvious; it's fucking obvious because obviously Roadrunner was very much an autonomous machine. But was the strategy? Look, guys, this could be a free ride if only we just stay. Let's just not fuck it up. Let's not fuck this relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So what's the what's the culture when you start at Roadrunner? Then so October two thousand, Slipknot's landed, the state by Nickelback's being pushed. We've got, um, as I keep saying, flagship acts doing flagship things. We sell machine, we sell fear factory. It's about to put out um, Digimortal. There's a few things going on. What's the vibe? That's a good question. That's a better way to say it. <laughs> well, I mean, the vibe generally was like crazy positive, right? Because mm. you did have, you, you, so I'll say this. You have the Slipknot record come. Uh, but for Iowa, right? And then right on the heels of that, you have the Nickelback record and everyone was just over the moon. I mean, like the radio guy there was just, I've never, I'd never seen him happy. Uh, and he was very happy like throughout all of that, right? <laughs> um, and then the new guy came in and kind of took it over, right? Um, <laughs> so it, it was really interesting just in the sense of like, there was all this commercial success. So like, it was really positive, but to like speak to the culture, like in as a regional, it's hard to do um, because you're removed from it. Like yeah. it was two of us in an office, right? Um, 
and I, and I think maybe Kathy mentioned it too, a little bit with LA, like if you're not in New York, like, and that's kind of what I learned when I got to New York was, oh, this is very different. <laughs> <laughs> what, what year um, do you go to New York? Just so I can plot it in the, the questions. 2005, in I go to New York um, in the, like kind of the late winter. Um, basically Mark Shapiro, who I mentioned, he was our director of field marketing for, for uh, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, he had decided to leave um, to take a job at Ferret uh, right. as their head of sales. And he was like, you need to come up here and just take this job. Like you're, you're the person I'm recommending for this. Like you just need to come do this. So, I mean, he basically went in if, if he was telling me the truth and he, he never lies. So, um, it, he, he told me, he basically was like, I'm leaving. And he was really well liked, like really well liked within, mm-hmm. within, within the building um, by everyone. Uh, and I think he, he was like, but Austin, you just need to bring Austin up, like, and you'll be, you'll be good. I think it was um, yeah. So, um, and you know, I, I think I had to, uh, uh, I had to make a few phone calls, uh, to my now wife, who is my girlfriend at the time, uh, being like, uh, New York, what do you think? And she's like, take it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was easy. Um, and, uh, and I think I called my best friend and he was just like, of all the people, like the one guy not looking to get out is getting out of here. Look at that. Um, cause I have, de- I was definitely like laid back pretty easygoing. So, yeah. um, which is also very frowned on in New York. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta earn your chops that way too. You, you do um, all right in old York, mate, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, before we skip over this, this bit. Yeah. Transition from red to universal. Yeah. This feels more significant than it seems when it's written down, right? When I read it, it's like, oh, this seems trivial. But but having spoken to Alan, oh, I know no. it's a big fucking deal that this is. This it was is- totally a big deal. Um, and again, you worked very closely with these. Like even as an intern, I worked really closely with these folks. So like, well, and and it's actually funny. Like you know, we went, you know, we went over there, and I was basically just told, hey, you're moving over here. So I wasn't really there to see the reaction it was just very kind of cut and dry you know i ran into folks like over you know that next year or whatever and everybody was super nice i mean no one was like it had any ill will but you know actually that same friend of mine that was uh, that was the roadrunner intern before me uh ended up being an assistant for one of the people at red and he was oh, like cool. oh yeah the day you guys left they took every Roadrunner plaque and turned them upside down and put them in the bathroom. <laughs> you know? So, you know, it was like, uh, I mean, that was like, that was the Atlanta office. I mean, I, I'm not saying all of Red did that, but like, you know, no, they were like a little symbolic. bit, you know, some people were rubbed on that. And it's, it sucks. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I've learned a lot from this podcast just on the sense of like the history of that deal and why that really truly happened. I'd always heard different stories, but I feel like I'm getting a more accurate portrayal now of things from, from your podcast <laughs> than even like most of the stories that I had heard in theories on why on that's you know, the most glowing endorsement happened. of yeah. any vocational activity. I'll put on my CV that mate. <laughs> that's interesting that, that obviously I'm sure, I'm sure, as you say, I'm not sure not everyone put all the plaques in the, in the bathroom, but it, it's very symbolic. Yeah. 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 Very, but I mean, in, but at the same time, you know, you, you, it's a small industry and everybody stays friends. So, cause you never know when, you know, somebody's going to end up somewhere else and then you end up somewhere else. Right. So. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> Fantastic. That's fucking yeah. brilliant. So what, <laughs> what did change then? Did Universal have a, a different... Because my, my, main, my main milestone with distribution, Austin, is sort of like everyone just... like We've got the 80s. Everyone just run ragged trying to make things work. Um, vans are getting robbed. Fucking Abigail King Diamond is fucking spilling out into the street. And then Nielsen happens and everything becomes digitized and trackable. And then the entire metrics of how success is quantified is completely changed. Um, and then I have no other milestone on how we're measuring distribution until we get to Napster when it all fucks everything up. Um, so was it, was there a difference between how Red and Universal operated? I mean, for me, it would probably just be volume more so right. than anything. Like those new release books like at Universal were just gargantuan every, every two weeks <laughs> that you were having the meeting. Um, and, and what are you going through? And you felt like you were on a bit of like, you know, a cattle call, like in the sense of like making sure your priorities heard and that they have all the information they need. And then of course you're following up after that. Right. Sure. And you're pretty hands-on with all the account reps and, you know, you're developing that relationship with the accounts themselves too. So, you know, if you need to ask for a favor, you can ask for a favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's like a, probably a big difference now between what it is now now versus what it was then right you know it was all on that physical product and you know playing with returns and Mm -hmm. hitting certain numbers for a certain quarter and and all that a lot of things that i don't miss (laughs) at all (laughs) was it were you ever incentivized like um i always give the the bloody kisses example for the red guys they were brought over to amsterdam for a party if bloody kisses went gold which happened and it happened did you ever get anything like that well again you know, me coming over, it was like right when everything, we were like a year from everything just blowing up. Mm. Um, and so everything blew up. So at that point, you know, we had company retreats. We had like, we were doing things together. Like my, my one taste as a regional, like to the company culture was like that first retreat that we had. So, you know, we flew up to New York and, um, we, we were like in the Catskills and I think the joke was like, we were staying in the hotel of like dirty dancing, which is not accurate. Uh, but it like felt like that. Right. Um, and it was like, everybody was there and everybody was partying and all the international <laughs> people were in. And, uh, I did one of the ones I listened to recently, like the, the, the Nickelback email from case that, uh, Hank Hanker like did a, made a plaque of, that was at that thing. Like Lior was there and he, Hank like presented this plaque first time meeting Hank. Hank is a force to be reckoned with. Like as a personality, one of my, I wish I was still in touch with him because he's like, just was one of my favorite people like that I, that I tried to keep in touch with um, from like the international side. But that was really where we got to meet everybody as a regional, like, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't know everybody. And then they did those a few, like, I think, I was at least at two company retreats we did. And then mm-hmm. the Roadrunner United party was that as well. So there was technically three. It's just one state local. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm still tracking track down that email. <laughs> I've been working with a few people to track down those sort of big case call calls to arms emails. Like there's some of them. There's not just one. There's a good number of them. And we've got a good number of them stashed yeah, away yeah. in the old Temple of Blair hard drives. But the silver side up one is still lacking. Oh, I mean, I wish I had pictures of a few things because sometimes Case just walked over to Cantor's office and just wrote a number on the office window in uh, 
in in Sharpie <laughs> of like, this is the number you have to hit. Like, <laughs> and you would just be on the phone looking at it kind of nervously and smiling and nodding like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So Dasha, tell me about Michael Cantor. He's a name that's come up a few times in the last, yeah. I spoke with Carl Severson as well. And he <laughs> had a reverence for the guy. Oh yeah, uh, Carl was my uh, was my roommate at that first retreat, uh, <laughs> and, he was, and it was kind of like, and it was very like I think I just started full time, like when I went into that, um, and uh, yeah, Cantor was he was so not roadrunner, but totally roadrunner. I think is like the best way to put it. Like he was not a metal guy, uh, and he was very like upfront about that but he was very good at selling like metal records <laughs> and but he was thrilled when Nickelback happened because like he was a pop guy so like he loved yeah. that but in, actually in all honesty he was, he actually came more from like a hip-hop background well as far as like his passion and stuff like that um where did he, so, work, pri- where did he work prior to Roadrunner? prior to um I want to, he worked in distribution, like, uh, like locally, I believe. I mean, again, I, I don't want to speak for him. He could give sure. better history and we still keep in touch. Like I talked to him. He's one of the people I talk to probably at least once every three months, if not more frequently. And he's like, I mean, he's totally gone on to do his own thing. He's like super successful in like, uh, like real estate, but he, he was such like a, but he likes to just know what's going on still and everything so he he, he loves just kind of like keeping in touch and all that and um you know that everybody's kind of that way with the old guard um you know it's always <laughs> everybody's always checking in on each other through other people sure. uh you know and all of that so <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about tell me about iowa and the game you, you seem to you would you gear oh so that wasn't that wasn't iowa that was all hope is gone is the oh, one shit. that it happened with yeah yeah all right so it was later it was later um right. you know so i would say so for sorry case so you go through everything with case and and you know with the different tent poles right but he never stops right he always had a new goal to achieve right so I, I joked around about that number on the window like that was probably i believe that was like this is how many records you have to ship on nickelback like you know and so yes nickelback so well so let's actually go back to iowa for a minute so slipknot was massive right with the first record so he was like so the next goal was like okay well we have a platinum record you have to ship platinum on iowa and that was the goal, right? And so you have Nickelback, Silver Side Up happen. And then he's like, cool. Long road, you have to ship 2 million on, you know? And that was, you know, it was, so it was always just like a moving bench post of like more, more, and more. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so no one rested <laughs> on anything, right? Um, so I think with the All Hope is Gone story, why it's fun is like kind of the next achievement after the long road I think was just getting the number one, which we hadn't had yet. We, we had not had a number one record. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Slipknot had not gotten it yet. Nickelback had not gotten it yet. Nickelback finally got it with, with all the right reasons. And that was our first one. That that was the first one. And that was 10, but there was, yeah, exactly. But there was, you know, there, there were the segment of, 
the Roadrunner office that was like the tried and true, like metalheads and our metal brand. And um, I think everyone was just like, Slipknot deserves this, <laughs> you know? So All Hope is Gone comes out and it was a great record. And then I woke up. So I handled all the sound scan reports when I moved to New York. It was brutal. You had to get up at like, I was in the office at 7 a.m. I had to have everything in everyone's inboxes with a full analysis by 9 a.m. at the latest Fuck. with like all these spreadsheets and, and all of that. And, you know, top performing DMAs, like all, 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 all of that stuff uh, with like full like recap of like, this happened this week and this is, and this was what happened with the competition and like, so the whole thing, right? Right. And I opened it up, I downloaded the chart and I looked at it and it was legitimately a difference of 13 units. And I was like, mother fucker. And I had like people coming to me all week, Monty coming to me the whole week of release, Jonas coming over, oh, oh, how we look, how we look. I'm like, it's going to be really close. It's going to be really close. And so when I got it and the game beat us by 13 units, I was like, there's two columns in SoundScan. There is your this week column and mm -hmm. your last, at the time, it looks a bit different now. Last week, the last week, or no, I'm sorry. It was the this week. And then it was your total. Mm -hmm. Our total was higher than the games. People had broken street date and Slipknot had sold more records. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that's bullshit. I'm not losing by 13 fucking units because some indies broke street date or whatever happened. <laughs> so I call at like legitimately like 7 a.m. in the morning. I call our person at, were we at the Warner? I can't remember if it was, it was, it was, it was in the Warner system at that point. So yeah. I, I called uh, my buddy Chris Walsh over at Warner and I was like, yo, this is, he's like, I know. I, know. I was like, no, we sold more. Like we had people broke street date and we have a higher event. Isn't there some rule about it? He's like, you know, I think there might be. <laughs> when was broke street date? What's this? So basically there were sales the week before the record came out because it's physical product, right? So you're shipping that mm -hmm. stores get it on, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, mm -hmm. the week earlier, or, you know, Friday mm -hmm. it, at that time, it was like a, a, tu a Tuesday release date. Right. So they get it on Friday. They sell them over the weekend. Because indie's got to make ends meet too, right? Like everybody was just buying for their piece of the pie. There was so much like competition and stuff at the time. So they, so I was just furious about it. <laughs> and, I, and I asked them like, can you look into this? And, and to like his credit, like he went to them and he challenged them on it. And like, they basically did a, they were doing a recount and, and all, because it was the tightest margin in sound scan history, like at the time and all of that. <laughs> And I had like, I had Court Brennan calling me and I'm like, yo, 13 units. I'm like, yo, I'm trying to fix it. I can sit here and call and talk to you or like, let me try to do my thing. He's like, go, 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 go. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I had Jonas coming over and like, Jonas, like at this point, it's like, it's like probably 10 a.m. in the morning. Like everybody's had this in their inbox for like, you know, an hour and a half. Like everybody's just kind of, it, like Jonas comes over and he's just like, you know, he's like, we did, we did a great job. Like, you know, he's, he'd accepted it. And he was, and I was like, no, I'm working on this. And he was like, 
okay. All <laughs> 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 right. It just walks away. <laughs> and I think oh. I got a phone call like half an hour later that was like, he's like, so Universal's being called right now to tell them that there was a number of indies that were not counted in the tally and Slipknot actually is the number one record by about 1200 units. (laughs) And, uh, and you have the number one record and, you know, and you know, they, and I think it was, uh, I mean, I can't even remember. I I probably wasn't the first phone call. Like I'm sure probably went to Jonas and case first. Right. But maybe they called me and I can't remember. I feel like maybe we all got the news at the same time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, if you talk to Jonas and my name comes up, like that's the story he tells, like he gets very, <laughs> so do you, when you I was, I was pretty relentless on that. I was like, I was, I was, I was really happy with that. And like, and luckily I had someone like Chris Walsh at Warner who had that relationship with SoundScan to be able to challenge it and, and get it done. So like, again, had we been with an indie, I don't know that we would have had that cloud or been able to call that in. So, you know, to, to their credit, you know, uh, he was really instrumental in that too, but definitely something I, I take a lot of pride in and uh, not, not in the sense of, I, I want to piss, uh, piss on somebody else's release week, but you know, it's pretty awesome. And it was just so well deserved. <laughs> and, and what's hilarious is every record since then has been number one for them. So good for them. Like, I love those guys. What, so. What's he got, what's he got to saying? You're now the number one record. Do you like smash your coffee mug and throw your fish? <laughs> fucking did it. Uh, in spirit, I certainly did. I think I was so exhausted just from like, I think the adrenaline crash like came down. <laughs> so I probably just probably wanted to go to sleep an hour after getting that news. But, uh, but I mean, it was a pretty amazing day. <laughs> wow. Wow, <laughs> by thirteen, that's fucking awesome. But it ended up being by twelve hundred, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. There's um, something which I don't know if if you, in a sales capacity, could sort of parallel this. One thing Amy was saying was um, one of the core things that Roadrunner did, the way it interfaced with the wider world, was it always made sure that the underground metal stations and the radio capacity got the, the heavy shit first. It was always about planting the seeds way outside of what we could regard as like a mainstream or triple A sort of um, establishment. Was that something you could have done in sales as well? Is that something you, is, was our mentality that was reflected in that arm of the business? Um, yes and no. no. Probably not as much as say with like the core stuff that like Amy was into, like whether that be metal radio or whether that be press. I acknowledge there's um, much less you can do, but... Yeah, like, I mean, on the indie side, you had your stores, right? Yeah. Like, but there's different stores, right? Like, there's the super, like, indie stores that don't really do much. With, and I actually find that that's changed significantly. Like, indie stores now are just, like, the cool places to buy records. And I feel yeah. like everybody goes there for different... I mean, I think Slipknot could sell there as well as, you know, the next cool thing on, you know, Sub Pop or Polyvinyl. Mm-hmm. as much as Lady Gaga could yeah. sell there, you know, like it, it, they've just become a little bit more all encompassing. Um, like, like pop culture, like purveyors, right. As opposed mm-hmm. to being like one niche. Whereas I think back then it's still very niche. Um, so you had your metal stores and those were obviously like tried and true. Um, Best Buy was probably the big box that was like really, that's where the metalheads went. Um, 
you know, more so than anything else. Like, you know, tar- Target could certainly be a player. Um, you know, Walmart on some, like Walmart was ground zero for Nickelback, like for like those tried true like rock records. Like, mm. you know, they, they were the massive outlet. Um, but so it was just all different. And Hot Topic obviously was like a huge one for, for metal. Um, and they were always like, you know, a, a tried and true one. Um, so you try to pick those partners to do really creative stuff with or partner with um, in, in creative ways. <laughs> is, is, is the, the retail arm still consignment in these days? So your, your priority is get Best Buy to buy as many fucking records as possible because it's their risk. I would be hard pressed to say exactly what it is these okay. days, uh, just because I'm out of it. Because uh, I work on the digital side now completely. So. I mean, in like yeah. twenty early twenty first. Oh, oh, okay. That that time, not necessarily now. Oh yeah, yeah. So at that point, like yeah, I mean, it was you know you were they had like a certain amount of days, right? Like they is like sixty or ninety days, like depending. And like you'd run deals, like discounts and stuff. You might give them an extra thirty days or whatever, and like mm-hmm. push a bit more. Uh, out there so like you know again whether it was either hitting your quarterly number or strategically it might just be like okay we're a year into this record we're still working it they're going on tour we got to push some more out there so you know again just give them those more advantageous um, terms so that they felt more comfortable stepping out on something but it was consignment still yes at at that point yeah okay Okay. yeah right Uh, up to like my my end on on the physical side in, in 2012 yeah. Right. Okay. And <laughs> um, when um, it's, an, it's another sort of, it's another culture question. Um, one, there's a story that Monty told me recently, <clears throat> which was um, regarding Ghost in 2012. I think Tobias came in for a meeting, and part of the the jive was to make the artist feel really at home, especially trying to sell up the idea of Roadrunner more than they could do just by his culture and his legacy. So in this case, a lot of staffers greeted Tobias dressed as ghosts. And it was all like a big fucking hurrah and a right laugh. Did you ever see anything like that during your tenure? Was there ever like... Um, we came artists? in all the time. Like when we were recording artists, um, you know, they would bring us in pretty pretty regularly like you know to meet with sometimes it was with an artist sometimes it was with man just a management team um, mm. or manager um but we did those relatively frequently um now i will say like you know it is very that i mean the new york office is the new york office like sure. you know, i mean you feel it when you walk in there like when i walked in there it was again deer in headlights I, and i've been working with for the company for like you know two or three years at that point as the regional yeah. But I came in, like, I had to earn my stripes again. Like, it wasn't, I, I think I got it, like, about a year later, mm-hmm. we had put out a baby band, and they had some radio success. They had a local following, and, like, we sold, like, 4,000 records, like, first right. week, which I think nobody anticipated it doing. And, because I think... Jonas would scratch his head occasionally about me. It, like uh, I, I was way, I was, I was Southern. I was like a Southern boy. I was way too nice uh, and not, and way too laid back. You know, I hadn't gotten my uh, neurotic uh, New York uh, styling yet. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I think they actually realized, oh, I mean, well, he was, you know, pretty. And, and, and actually Bob Johnson, I will say, 
who was also somebody I just thought did not like me at all. Like the first like year we worked together in that mm. New York office, like, yeah, I, I know he, he gave me a lot of credit for that win. Um, and I think things started to change a bit after that. And then I felt more comfortable in the culture and everything. There's so, like, oh, okay, the kid actually knows what he's doing. Can, can, uh, can you name, can you name <laughs> that band? A faction. A faction. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they were from, from Dallas, Texas, I believe. I think Meep uh, Meep did an episode on faction recently. Was that? I think Meep Meep did an episode on, on faction. Oh, recently. maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, super nice guys. That's the thing, too. Like, you always feel for those that didn't necessarily go because everybody was always nice, you know? Is it very rare that you worked, especially the young bands, you know? (laughs) So, um, but yeah, you know, that was one where it was just, uh, I mean, I think it definitely, the fact that they had a big week like that, I think it got them some extra time and some extra attention um, Mm. from from the label, from like an investment standpoint and all that for a while. Why, what's the expectation for a baby band then? Because 4,000, I guess, in this time, would still be considered low, but I guess in this case, it's still surprising and surprisingly positive. So what would a normal baby band pull? I mean, it depends what it is. And then it's also like, it comes down to like, where do you hit on certain charts? Because that opens up certain doors for you, right? And that helps you get more, maybe more tours. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just helps like everybody sell. Like, yeah, I was the sales guy, but everybody was selling something there, right? If you're press, you're you're selling it to, you know, the outlets. If you're you're touring, you're selling it to the agents, you know, and and all of that. (laughs) So, you know, those things were all like really impactful. So if you could say like, you know, hey, it was a top 10 heat seeker artist or whatever, you know, that's that's helpful to to everyone. so yeah, I it's contextual, is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how does um, your your role move moving forward? How does your role change? Because obviously, what, one blind spot for me was how Roadrunner interfaced with the digital era. Now I know there were some things, there were some things done. There was these from the vault collections, um, which I think Monty orchestrated, which was if uh, a band like had more than one record on Roadrunner, they'd have like a bundle of just two records in one pack or something like that, presumably to incentivize people discovering the back catalog and things like that. If I understand rightly, there was also singles put on... This is the, the problem with this podcast, dude. I've done so fucking many. I couldn't tell you exactly... <laughs> I forget exactly what, it, what I've been told. But yeah. I think there was like... I think Roadrunner trying to lean into online downloading a little bit by releasing singles online first or something like that. Um, no, we we were pretty on it in, in the sense of like embracing, you know, Apple as it came in and iTunes and mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Like, uh, and I would actually say Doug was really instrumental and Doug Yo was really instrumental in that because he took it all very seriously, like as like things changed. Uh, and obviously he was there for a long time. So I think, you know, he saw different waves of, you know, what technology could do to the industry and what different formats could do to the the industry. So I don't think we were ever, we were never in a sense of like, we're not touching iTunes. Like the money's not there. Like we were never (laughs) that way. Right. Like I think it was more of, and again, I think this speaks a little bit more to, you know, the sentiment that like cases a businessman put into the company was like, everyone's like, there's a lot of money there. (laughs) How do we get it? Like, how do we get our piece of that, right? Mm-hmm. And and metal generally is slower to adopt new formats, right? Sure. So, you know, Nickelback did great there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then you saw things like Slipknot do well there, but it was also an uphill battle. Like, you know, because they, those accounts, like they were used to whatever the really hot thing was at that moment. Like that's what they were focused on. Mm -hmm. And this is the challenge I think with, you know, at least the metal side of it always was, you know, banging on the door and beating your way through it, like, and making people pay attention to it because it was meaningful and there was an audience there and, um, you know, getting folks to like really pay attention and actually see the value there of like, Hey, this is an audience you don't have. <laughs> we can help you get there. Um, and, and, and I think we had a lot of success that way, like as it, as it came down and, and obviously like they, like as the, as DSPs, um, got bigger and, uh, and, you know, Apple, you know, got like really good editors and, and all of that, you know, and then everybody's clamoring to have a relationship with the editor. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and take care of them. You know, you started to kind of see those walls come down a little bit and rely a little bit more on those, those relationships and those folks to kind of be your voice too. Like, this is meaningful. Like you guys need to like, and they, they would be in the ears of like, you know, people giving real estate, like, you know, on the iTunes store and, and, and whatnot of like, Oh yeah. You know, those nine guys in mass that y'all think is scary. Like there's actually a massive audience there. Like we should give them a break. You know, <laughs> like they deserve that. You know? <laughs> and, and that sounds crazy because you think of Slipknot as being like such a big band, but like, you know, it's sometimes it was a, a slog no matter what. And again, that's why I say a little bit like being able to amplify that. Cause you still, as much as they permeated like with like a specific audience you still that's not everybody that works in the industry that's not yeah. all the gatekeepers so you still gotta like you know fight the fight there's still people in the world who go Ugh, mask well, well, and, and, and vice versa as big as nickelback was you still sometimes fought with people over like well, they're not cool enough it's like who are you to judge that right like you look at the numbers and like give me what we're, what we're asking for because they deserve it mm, yeah yeah <laughs> And, and yeah. same with like, you know, any of the, like the baby bands and like, sometimes you had, sometimes it was so easy because people like love, loved it and you had the right gatekeepers and you had those relationships. Sometimes it was a slog, like just trying to get them to understand it. Um, but that was the job and it was great. That's it, isn't it? That's, that's one of the poignant ones was Mark Emerson talking about the bloody kisses. I'm referring to it as a campaign. I don't know if they'd call it a campaign. I think they were just working a record, but getting people to understand this really eclectic group of lads that's just like that's the that's probably a really poignant success story the fact that typo had the home it had a roadrunner because i don't think anyone else could have delivered on that and i think that again speaks to the value of how the industry kind of tried, well, how it mobilizes itself to give those people a platform. And it also speaks to what you're saying earlier, which is it is who you know and it's how you manage those relationships because I, Jim Yorkshireman, am not going to convince fucking Johnny record label that nine in, in mass is, is a viable commercial uh, prospect, whereas Austin, veteran of the industry, has a much better chance. And therefore, that's where we can influence those numbers coming in. For sure. And I mean, yeah. and again, you like, you get, you, you hope that you make those relationships, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you hope that you get, uh, we, Roadrunner gave me the benefit of being able to have some stuff to put out there and be right, right? Yeah. Um, just because stuff was already commercially viable 
or, you know, we had our, our ducks in a row, mm-hmm. uh, on, on things, you know, from like a, a marketing perspective and a setup perspective, um, and the label and the artists gave the goods. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody remembers your big success and maybe they forget about like the three or four duds, um, yeah. you know, like, so you always have that to kind of, kind of lean on and, you know, we were relatively for my duration there, it was pretty consistent that way. Mm-hmm. Um, foremost, I mean, there were, there were challenging years here and there. Um, there just weren't like a big nickelback year or a big slipknot year, <laughs> but for the most part that something fell in that, you know, we were able to do a lot with and, and, and help with. I guess, I guess here's a question and maybe this isn't a very good question, but I'm going to try and I'm trying to make it as obvious as I can for myself. Um, uh, so we obviously you're in the world of sales. You have relationships that are, are propagating these things happening. You have a scene which has historical metrics and sound scan, which you can judge things by. But when you're putting a release out and you're pitching to Best Buy and Target and all these other retailers, and you're trying to get them to sell as much as, or trying to get them to buy as much product as possible, how are you driving return on investment numbers? Because you must be saying, right, okay, yeah, it's not a Slipknot year, it's not a Nickelback year, but it is a fucking Still Remains year. Don't you worry about that target. We think this is <laughs> going to sell X and you've got to drive that home. So did you ha- ever have to like predict numbers? Or was, well, obviously you had to be. Oh, yeah, that. yeah. I mean, what were the mechanics of doing that? And was it, how much of a gamble was it? Yeah, so we had like budget meetings and, and projection meetings. So um, it would usually be me, Cantor, Jonas, Case, Doug, um case wasn't always there actually i don't actually case might not have been in those um but we would go through and just like i mean it was just this crazy long sell sheet of everything for the year stuff that was out and we were just continuously projecting it to what we had like budgeted for the year right Mm -hmm. there's always a breaking artist category so that was like units that were reserved for something breaking uh right so it's, well, so things that have no right making an impact that we've got to give some sort of resource to it because that's what a record label does well that's what that's what that was the goal was to yeah. break artists right so you had that in there and if a, you know if it was um you know if it was theory of a dead man right and and all of a sudden you have bad girlfriend you know that starts to eat into that right you're like okay great we're breaking an artist um or if it's dragon force with you know the you know the YouTube video that it was like as it started and then Guitar Hero a year later, you know, that eats into it. Um, or Kill Switch or any or like any of those that, you know, I would say we broke um, on some level. So uh, so that was always there, but was like, you know, as you're doing it, like, you know, it's not something you can just say, we got this, right? <laughs> like, this is what we work to. Um, and, and you're constantly making adjustments. So like once something's out, not um where did it land and then and once something's out then it becomes a little you know you have history to look at and 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 all of that and it becomes a little bit of an easier process yeah um to go through uh and then you can kind of go through and then it also kind of comes into play like you know i mentioned earlier like you know you run deals and stuff like you know hey we're gonna be like a thousand units shy on this one it's like hey let's run a deal on it uh for you know this so that you know we're looking good for the quarter and and, right so so how do I how do I extrapolate? So there was 
always a, I guess the, the, the you're rolling the dice on your first projection, right? I guess that's what you're doing because you're making a big ball statement saying this. Well, it's be the always carried over because you're not, you're never like just ending a cycle because the year starts over. Right. So whatever, like, you know, if you're working a nickelback record, you're working that for two years, mm. right. Or something not record or, or kill switch or any of those. So if those are, so those carry over. Uh, so you, you kind of always have something you're working off of, but then you are like kind of planning out. It's like, okay, getters in the studio with OPEV. It should probably be out in July. Um, you know, so you're adding that, all that stuff in. You know what? Like, I think I'm thinking of it wrong. I'm thinking of this as a projections per artist. You're thinking projections per quarter, are you? You're thinking oh, everything. Well, I'm thinking of it like, well, this is like, this was like the bottom line for the company. Like this was what yeah, yeah. it was going to be for the year. So it was everything. Everything was on it. It was project by project. Ah, so everything I, had its I, own line, but it was still project by project. It was, so, project, it was still one summary of everything. So you always had the room to say, this is underperforming, but this is overperforming. Three yeah. things are happening over here. This record label just shut down, so we're going to get traffic from that. There's always room to sort of breathe it. Yeah. And yeah. it gave you that full macro view, but also you were drilling into each individual project and, mm. and like what's what's overperforming, what's underperforming, what's performing as expected, you know, all of that. So, um, and then, you know, if something falls out of the sky, like if there's a new signing and the record's done, you know, uh, which would happen on a you know, you you drop that in and then all of a sudden like you're, you're making up things. And I mean, I think that plays a little bit into some like the uh, heritage signings that like kind of came like in that, that those later years. And, and the allowed and proud stuff. Yeah. And, and I mean, and even some of the um, stuff that like, you know, was still coming through A&R, uh, you know, Megadeth was getter, you know, that wasn't, mm -hmm. that wasn't loud and proud. Um, and uh, I mean, Opeth had was established at yeah. that point, I mean, I think Roadrunner took them to new heights, mm -hmm. uh, but you know there was history there, right? So there were things like that. That's like they didn't start with us. You know? There's this really uh, cool this thing that happens in the mid 2000s. You get a load of European, mm -hmm. like, dyed in the wool European metal, some death yeah. metal, some uh, symphonic metal that take one step in Roadrunner. They're all of a sudden a US viable, and then step on to step somewhere else and but the now a household name in the u.s i think that's quite interesting so i need to to to, to look at but did the opposite happen though did you have like a project that was underperforming and you go look we're burning 20 grand a month on marketing for this one kill it move that money to megadeth um i wouldn't say it was shifted that way i would yeah. say they might kill the budget mm -hmm. uh, it, they weren't necessarily reassigning it like in, in, in the same conversation, that's not to say, hey, this is in in the same meeting. They might not. Mm. We might move on to another project, and somebody might say, hey, this is overperforming. We have this opportunity to do this, but it's going to cost this much money. Yeah. All right, let's bump that up and and find it. You know, you always wanted to kind of stay because I mean, you're doing like the PLs and all that stuff. Mm. Like you always wanted to stay within your budget on a project, either way. So really, shifting might come from like you know, the radio campaign's not really working here, but there's all this heat because of a sink or whatever. Yeah, I'm totally pulling The MySpace is doing well. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, yeah. you know, like, you know, there's some there's something going on here. Let's take the money out of 
this is so backwards because it'd probably be the other way. Radio's really heating up. So do we really need all this money for like, you know, press or whatever? Like they probably just pump it into radio. But so those conversations would happen, right? Mm. Uh, but it'd be more about like within its own budget. Um, and then if you were tapped, like if you had hit the budget, the, there was an opportunity to talk about budget increases and stuff like that. It's like, right, this right. is overperforming. You know, we should increase this up for this period of time. So those, right. those, those conversations were definitely happening, like, uh, within those meetings. Was Jonas or Dugar or uh, Michael Cantor, were they particularly hardline on anything in particular? Were they always reluctant to do certain things? I'm, I'm re- you know what, mate? It's because I'm a project manager. So I'm like, oh, no, yeah. I want to see this Excel sheet and I want to see what politics are at play in these meetings because I know what it fucking feels like. <laughs> Doug, Doug might have been probably the... I, I mean, I would actually say both Jonas and Doug were both like very cautious about all of that stuff. Mm. Um, I think Doug, you really had... Doug, Doug was the king of devil's advocate. Like he would throw a positive and a negative at you in the same sentence like no one else could. So, and I really liked Doug and I liked that about Doug. I, I feel like I, I, I play devil's advocates to too many things now because of Doug, <laughs> 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 which probably frustrates people. Um, but he, uh, so I think like with him, because sometimes it was me walking into an office and being like, hey, there's this opportunity and I can get extra visibility at this retailer for this tour that's happening and we're seeing stuff, but like, I need this much money, right? Or there's an opportunity at Apple and I need to get the band there, like, you know, but we got to cover it. Like, can I get this budget or whatever? Um, You know, and I think as long as you went in with Doug and you knew Devil's Advocate and you had all your justifications lined up. It was a pretty easy conversation. He just wanted to know that you thought it through and that there was like a method to the madness. Right. That's why Uh, he's GM. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and, and Jonas was a marketing guy. So he, he wasn't necessarily like, you know, really tight with the purse, but he was definitely, you know, he, he, it needed to make sense to him in the sense of like, how is this going to increase the exposure? How is this actually going to help amplify the marketing that we're doing uh, in some way? And, you know, there were those projects we worked too, where like, you know, they, they killed the budget and everybody was passionate about it. And it would like gut your heart <laughs> a little bit. I, I think I was like vocal once in a meeting and I was just like, Oh, like when they killed it, they killed the budget on it. And like, and, and it was done. And uh, he was like, it isn't a comment on the band. Like, I mean, he said that, like, he was like, he was like, we all like the band. <laughs> we all like the guys. Like, <laughs> Otherwise they will so, be in the room in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> what are your memories of Roadrunner United then? Did you think, I mean, I mean, not even from just the gig, but from the project as, as a whole, did you think, like, now this is a bit of a weird idea. No, I thought it was awesome. Like, I mean, I think there was an excitement generally, like within like the core, like, the, there was the younger team too. Like, mm-hmm. did anyone ever mention like the Young Turks meetings to you at all? Amy did. Oh, okay. you, you, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Young Turk to that yet? So yeah. So you know, we were part of that. <laughs> we were like part of the younger crew or whatever, and that was very much something Case put together. Right? He wanted the younger team to have a voice. Doesn't mean he couldn't kibosh it, <laughs> as, as well as Doug and Jonas as well. Like they could kibosh anything, but like you know, a lot of crazy ideas came out of that. A lot of really good ideas came out of that. Um, so I think that crew was mm-hmm. very into Roadrunner United. Um, 
and very into the idea of it. And everyone like, you know, Matt was definitely like a darling of the label and we all just really liked him and really rooted for him. Hey, Adam D was, you know, it, everybody that got kind of selected as a, as a captain, like kind of had a special place with, you know, different people in the building. So it was a very unique thing. I mean, for me, it was kind of like, I was like, eh, I mean, Dave Grohl did this already, right? With Probot. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was on like such a bigger scale than that because it wasn't just one guy. It really was a collaboration. Like you think about it now because there's so many collaborations going on in music. And, and I feel like, I mean, you think about it in the sense of like, you know, you see it all the time in like pop music and hip hop. But I do think you're starting to see it more in like rock and metal. And, mm-hmm. you know, so for Roadrunner United to do that and also some of the people they got because you knew there was drama with certain artists and yeah. stuff like that with the label. Like, you know, so for like Daryl from Glassjaw to be on a song, which I think that's the best song on the record. Um, and Joey Johnson didn't play drums on it. They, yeah. They're, they're yeah, programmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's crazy. But, but guitar, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you take away, you can get from Joey. Um, the, you know, the fact that they got everybody to like work together and be a part of that was like really special. And the fact that it was like, well, I think I'm, I'm fighting like tooth and nail like it's one i bring up all the time is that it needs a vinyl release so i'm 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 trying my darndest to get it out on vinyl <laughs> did you um have you seen the the concert dvd i have oh yeah i was there <laughs> what, what do you i'm i'm pretty damn sure that at the start when i can't remember even who comes out and says hey let's get the show i swear like the crowd noises are inserted I swear that, and I know I'm aware oh, there's a lot of editing, but it might have been because it was also our Christmas party and it was also like a retreat because like our Christmas parties, they didn't always fly all the international people in, but all the international people were in for the, for this. Right. Yeah. So they, I mean, everyone was shit faced by the time it went on. I, I'm not, a, I'm, I, I barely drink now, but I definitely didn't drink then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was sober mm-hmm. uh, the whole time. And I mean, I was there with my wife and, um, and I remember like, you know, every, everybody, by the time it finally got started, like everyone was drunk. So like when they went on, it was like a little, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, people were excited. There was noise, but it was also like a bunch of industry people. And they, I mean, there was a few, there were tickets sold to fans, but I mean, it was our Christmas party. It was like a lot of industry people, but also you've heard about the Roadrunner Christmas party. It's like, mm-hmm. we could have filled that room on our own like with just our contacts, like easily. Right. So, in it, you know, as a big venue, we could have filled that room. <laughs> Was there anyone missing from that record? I'm just trying to wrap my brain now. I don't think there's anyone. You could always, you could always say there was, but when I think of it, I don't think, did Adam D play on any of them? What's that? Who? Adam D didn't play on any of the tracks, did he? Well, Adam was a team captain. Adam D wasn't. It was Matt, Rob, Dino, and Adam. And Joey. Oh, and Joey, that's right. No, Adam definitely played on something, I thought. Oh, I could be wrong, I could be wrong. Um, I'm trying to just think of who was missing. Not, not to say, not to say, fucking Elmont, he didn't organize this properly. But just like, <laughs> just to, to, dem- to demonstrate just how effective it was at showcasing the sheer... Mm-hmm. Variety and the, the footfall and the label. There's not many people I can say were missing other than Adam D. <laughs> huh. That's actually crazy to me that he would be missing. Uh, I mean, cer- certainly Killswitch had representation there, but um, 
you know, um, I'm going to chuck that up to Mike Gitter being protective and not wanting to give up any uh, future kill switch songs. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet, I, I bet if there was like a producer list, I bet I could find him on there. I bet he's somewhere in there. I'm just not seeing him. <laughs> no, that's awesome. But yeah, it's, it's, this, this, one, it needs a vinyl release. And secondly, it needs, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you killed the con- maybe you killed the concert DVD and you let everyone who was there just remember it as like their own sort of precious thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like it was a funny night to say the oh, least. God, like, yeah. was, the, the musically, it was great. Like it was a good time. Like everyone was tight. You could tell they cried, with the exception of, of course, uh, Brian from Shadows Fall, yes. uh, <laughs> which everybody knows uh, about that. But um, and again, just started that bar way too early, but. <laughs> mm, mm. It was, uh, I mean, it was a good night. Um, it was a lot of fun and it was great. I will actually tell you, it's funny going back and thinking about it of like the level of work it took, especially of like our touring team to coordinate everything, um, between Harlan Fry and, um, and Justin D'Angelo, like poor Justin, my God, like that guy was just like the fact that he didn't become an alcoholic after that uh it is a testament to his spirit um but they they ran a tight ship and they really pulled it off and i mean that i mean that's like there's a reason a probot show never happens you know <laughs> i mean that's a lot uh it's a lot of personalities a lot of people to coordinate with and, and get it all together and yeah know, man. they did a great job <laughs> yeah and the artists too like they took it all really seriously and uh you know, the one thing that is not overdubbed is the, the fuck Monty chance that, that Joey started uh, <laughs> there. And, you know, and again, a testament to him. So. <laughs> so I, I want to make a move towards sort of like the end era of the sort of what we'll, we'll call like the independent era or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I want to do, let's just do a lining round, lining round. Okay. So we had the Young Turks. Was there a, a name for the old guard? As far as like just uh, the the folks that predated uh, us, that yeah, last, yeah because like, like, I'm sure that there was like I'm sure there was a senior leadership meeting which wouldn't involve any young Turks. And mm-hmm. if we're going to be as poetic as to call the young people the young Turks, you should be calling that one the corresponding oppressing regime, what like the young Turks were rebelling against. <laughs> <laughs> They'd only be sporting to do so. Oh my gosh! I I mean uh, the ANR team might tell you that. Uh, <laughs> no, for us, like no. I mean it was. I mean that was that was like our voice, and that was something like they they had coined. Um, That's so funny that that. And I'm not sure who out. coined it, but there was no like special term for like you know <laughs> everyone else. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it was strictly like kind of that the 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 young Turks, like you know the the new the new blood in the mm. company, and and, and bringing them and and like uh, I, I guess uh, it had it gone on, it would have been funny to see if people aged out of the young Turks. Like if you got kicked out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lining round number two. So this is, this is something which is buried. It's buried somewhere in my psyche. I read it somewhere, maybe, maybe a year ago. And it came up when I was speaking to Dave Longcow. When we had this, this period of like triple A artists and we had this underground metal part as well, there was, there was apparently, and it's been refuted by a number of people, um, that, but there was apparently talks of splitting the label in two and having Roadrunner Red and Roadrunner Blue. Does that sound oh. remotely familiar? Yeah. 
Perfect. Never heard anything about Fine. that. <laughs> Fine. That's another point to the it never happens crowd. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly like those folks that were very like, the brand is the brand, right? Yes. And then I, there were folks that were definitely more open and there were hires like to help with the stuff that was a little more eclectic. And we had some success with the more eclectic stuff too. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, technical back out of it, right? You know, like, you know, I think, I think Case's next goal was to break a big alternative act. And that's yeah. what he really wanted to happen. And like, you know, had some success with the Dresden dolls. They definitely didn't fit the mold. Right. Um, and then had some success with, um, Young the Giant. And, you know, I think they were probably the most successful from the alternative side and, uh, you know, with alternative radio with, mm-hmm. you know, this, like the sinks and stuff that they were getting. Um, you know, I always joke around because like, you know, I, as, as they were like chipping away and getting more and more accolades, I was like, like back then the big thing was like, if you can get a sink on Glee, well, look what it did for Journey. You know, and like that was like the big thing, like get a sync on Glee. It'll really help because that broke a few bands. Um, And we did finally get that. Like at some point, that was always my challenge. I was like, I was like, into marketing, I was like, give me a sync on Glee. (laughs) Get more records out there. (laughs) So you eventually got a song on Glee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it was, it certainly, I I think at that point, like I think they were maybe on like their third season. So it wasn't quite the juggernaut, but I mean, it definitely moved Units. (laughs) Units. <laughs> it's like I mean, you know, what was how you get, uh, that was cough syrup. I believe, yeah, it was cough syrup. Right. Okay. Yeah, which was kind of the song we always thought would be the big song from <laughs> from them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that was great, and you know, it it's evolving things, right? Like you know, because now it's like TikTok, right? Can you get that? can can you get that viral thing happening on tiktok and it's like which is always funny uh because you can't make something viral happen it just happens um but yeah so it's like and i see that now it's all cyclical right like because that was the big thing then and now it's now it's tiktok and before that you know and radio was always like a big factor like you know now everyone wants to be on playlists and (laughs) that's the new radio right i can't Um, keep up mate that's you really problem. can't. <laughs> it's crazy. Just play 20-year-old video games and see. Yeah. <laughs> well, and video games too. Like, I mean, that's still that's still a very viable thing if it's again, if it's the right thing. Yeah, get now it's get your song on the next COD advert, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so let's let's look towards the latter days then. Uh, the latter days of the independent, well, fully independent, if you want to call it. I haven't got a name for this yet. I think I might have come up with a name for it of this era. Because the label's still going and it's still strong. But let's figure this out. So have I missed any milestones up to this point? Let's call it sort of 2010. Because I think this will be the, the, the time you'll be realizing something, something's amiss, right? Some things are different around 2010. Oh, for sure. Um, or not so much amiss, but just like, you know, the starting to notice just like some of the you know, I'm in those budget meetings, you know, not hitting those numbers um, Mm -hmm. and and whatnot and the realities of what that can mean. Uh, Have have I missed anything up to that point? Any milestone, any stories that you've got? Can we have the, 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 um, um, all hope is gone one. um, Don't want to miss anything else. I think, um, I mean, there's obviously like the success stories, you know, that were on brand, right. You know, like Mm -hmm. kill switch and, and, and what that meant to the label and, 
um, you know, the consistency there and just, uh, you know, I actually, I, I mean, I, you might've seen this on social media, but, uh, I saw Mike D posted the other day that the, uh, the album, he heard a rumor that the album, uh, as daylight dies was certified platinum. Yep. Um, and then like it got announced, uh, you know, over the weekend. So, um, you know, that was really exciting to see, like, you know, I was there for like, you know, the, the trudge to gold on those things. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, even had like a nice correspondence with, uh, Vaughn on the management team, um, you know, congratulating that, that, that crew and, and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, there were all those things that were like kind of near and dear to, uh, to our hearts, um, from the label, uh, and, and all those, you know, those bands that, you know, they, uh, Actually, you know, I will tell you a funny story um, of the earlier days. This was at before I moved to New York. Okay. Machine Head. <laughs> <laughs> so Through the Ashes of Empires did not come out in the United States. It only came out in the UK. And I listened to that record. I liked Machine Head. Like, I, was, I mean, Supercharger was, you know, a miss, but it was, you know, something, you know, every band should be allowed a, a miss. Right. <laughs> um, and I think, so I think like maybe some folks just didn't quite feel like they needed as good as through the ashes of empire as my favorite machine head record. I would say when I listened to that, I immediately called New York. <laughs> I called, I did not even know Monty yet. I mm. called Mark Shapiro and I was like, Yo, I just listened to the machine head you sent me. He's like, yeah. I was like, why are we not putting this out here? Um, he's like, right, it's really good. I was like, what the fuck are they thinking? Like, what is Monty thinking? <laughs> and never having met the dude. And again, I just think it was like, you know, again, you can get really beat down in those like AR meetings or whatever. So maybe it was that. I don't know. But uh, I was very proud of the day. Uh, I think maybe it was like six months later where we licensed the record so we could put it out in the U.S. and, and gave it gave it a shot. Um, and then obviously, like they had a whole second wind, you know, right after that yeah. with the blackening and all that. So, um, but I always thought that that was crazy. Like I, I know you love like the business nerdiness side of it. So I was I was always like I thought that that was an interesting one, just in the sense of like that one did not that record did not follow the norm at all. Yeah, uh, but it was interesting in the sense of like. No one gave up on the band though either. Yeah. Um, and there is something to that. Like, you know, I think those, those are legacy bands, like those that really started from ground zero and worked their way into something. Like there was a lot of respect in the building for those artists. Um, and, you know, e even like the old stuff, you know, as much as, uh, you know, I've heard some of the older artists that were there long before I was part of Roadrunner, you know, tell their stories and whatnot like I, you know i'd love them to be a fly on the wall and like some of the meetings i sat in where like doug keogh was always the champion of catalog and like how passionate he would be about like our reissue series and like the, the vault series and like and all of that so you know there's a there was a lot of love there um yeah. that i think would probably maybe surprise some of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i completely agree I completely agree, especially I think now these days there's an elevation in the standard of conversation in general. And I think when it comes to things like Roadrunner, some of the, which is a product which always ended up on Blabbermouth as this happened, this happened, this controversy, that controversy. I think people are now sort of realizing, oh no, there's another side to it as well. And it's mostly 
everything's mostly amicable. Oh yeah, totally. And respectful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're in the budget meetings. It's 2010. The numbers aren't quite looking as, as strong as they once were. How are we rolling down the hill? Um, you know, it was, it was a few different things. Um, you know, I think there was there was a little bit of a struggle to you know break artists, right? Like some newer artists. Um, you know, theory was a success story and it was around that time too, I feel like. So I feel like that rejuvenated some of it a, mm-hmm. a bit. Um, they had done the loud and proud deal. Um, that was, I don't want to be too harsh on the loud and proud team because, and, 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 and the, the man behind that, because he definitely was very good at finding that repertoire and, like working those artists and had great relationships. I'll preface it. I'll preface it with by recommending Han Cool Teddy Bear. To yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great. It's a great yeah. album. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But some of those, the way it was always kind of pitched to us is like, this is established repertoire, established sales, mm-hmm. low maintenance, and that's just not reality because these are established artists. Like mm-hmm. they were not low maintenance and. And rightfully so. They were like, a lot of them were icons in their own regard, right? Mm. So some of them were really good deals and they were really, you know, profitable for us and and whatnot. And some of them were really not. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think my favorite one was actually the Rat record. And this is a testament to Dave, Dave Rath. Cause that dude, he came, he was in like a hair metal band, you know, back in the day, Heaven's Edge. And he, so he was championing this thing and, you know, everyone, I think everyone, us younger guys uh, and ladies, I think were kind of writing it off a little bit as like, you know, it's a little hair metal. Um, And he did such a good job selling us on it. Well, one, they made a great record Mm -hmm. and he did such a good job selling us on it. And there weren't like crazy expectations with it um either you know we sure. far exceeded that one and that one was a great deal for mm-hmm. us but we were, i was also always kind of like forever endeared to them just because i was like man you did such a good job selling this to like the staff and like every, like that was one where the anr guy did such a good job like endearing himself he got like a lot of folks myself included like i, I uh you know, Amy, a whole bunch of folks over there, like to really just kind of like fall in love with the band and really champion them, like in the like the later era for them. So yeah. that was one that like really, and there were a few of those. Who, who that, like, was the one that orchestrated Loud and Proud? Was that Rath? No, that Tom Lipsky was was the man behind uh, Loud and Proud. Um, like as far as like bringing in the deals and 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 all of that. Um, and, and he had been over, he had done, uh, he had like a similar business model over Sanctuary. Like, you know, he was just definitely like ingrained in the scene with like these heritage artists. Um, mm-hmm. He just, he knew everybody. Um, and he yeah. was a great like A&R source from that side, but he was really more doing the business. Like once it came over, typically it was getting assigned to yeah. different A&R people. So like Raph got that one, right? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> So you you were saying I just wanted to oh no, yeah so like that Monty did some of them like I mean they all just kind of got divvied out to to different folks on the team. All right, okay, okay, and so when when when's the the axe falling then in 2012? What's, so how's that yeah. feeling? How's that feeling to you? And what's the run up for you? 
I mean, for me, it was like, you know, I was in those meetings, so I knew what the numbers were. And it was, you know, I think there was always the hope that we would, there would be a Slipknot record that year and all that. And it just kept bumping and bumping and bumping. And, um, and we just didn't have anything. So it was just kind of like the nerve wracking thing of like, it really wasn't a strong year for the label. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, you had, you, you had people from the sister label, like in the building, you know, in, in there too. And, um, so you just felt like it was a little more hands-on, like, you know, Case had kind of said what he was going to say, like in the sense of like, you know, this is what the, <clears throat> this is the deal. And like, I'm, and I'm, remember the exact timeline on it but i remember i mean he gave a speech basically that you know he was being bought out and basically he was gone and he he literally summoned you all around and said this has happened yeah like you know he wanted everybody to feel good about the situation you know and and he took care of you know a lot of the folks that had been with him a long time like he he was nothing if not like incredibly loyal to you know, his core staff. And he mm-hmm. was, I mean, he was, he was, he was just a really genuine person <laughs> from, from that. I mean, he was very business savvy. He could be very, you know, abrupt and curt and, and, and all of that to you. Um, but he definitely took care of his people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, he told the story about like, you know, yeah, you know, when I was, in, you know, when I worked for a major, uh, you know, and then I got, like fired and you know now i'm here and they bought me out and now i'm fired again no <laughs> like you kind of said it like a joke it was hilarious like in retrospect i mean it was a little heartbreaking at the time um but yeah but yeah so it was very much like you know you just kind of got a a, a sense of that and then kind of from there you know everybody kind of started to like to to kind of move on like i think i I, when I had found out I was being let go, I had just gotten back from like dark horse had come out. I had from Nickelback. I had just gone out to Columbus, Ohio for some big arena show. And like Walmart was filming it for like some promotion that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was out there for that. And then I kind of came back and, um, like, I mean, I got the news like shortly thereafter, but like, even at that point, I knew something was wrong. I wasn't sleeping well. Like, I mean, you just got, like, it was like nerve wracking just knowing the numbers, right? Like knowing what, like having that much like insight into it. Right. And at this point I was like the head of sales. Like they let my boss go, they let Michael Canner go like a year earlier. And that was like, Mm -hmm. that was heartbreaking. That was like the worst thing I ever had. That was the most awkward like month of my life was, you know, him kind of working out like the rest of that time and knowing I'm staying and he's, he, he, he was leaving mm. and him being like a mentor to me and, 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 and all of that, like, and just an all around good dude. Uh, you know, you don't want to see that like with anybody. Um, and I, so I got called into Jonas's office and he gave me the news and, and he was very kind about it and everything. And, um, and, you know, I got a sense that he wasn't like super stoked about it <laughs> either. Um, and, you know, met with the HR people and they were, they were nice too, you know, like nobody yeah. was, you know, nasty about any of this stuff. It was always like, you know, it's just you're doing your job. I am not lying. I walked back to my desk. I, Justin D'Angelo looked at me square in the eyes because everybody knew something was up that day. 
and I just popped in uh, Nickelback's "If Today Was Your Last Day," and everyone just started laughing, like because like, <laughs> it's like, what are you gonna do? Um, and uh, I had my first good night's sleep in a long time that night. I just needed the closure. I needed to know what was going on. <laughs> but you know, in like hindsight, like you know, in this industry, it's all how how much you are, how kind you can be to, you know, your partners in this, whether that's the artist, whether that's, you know, your partners in sales or what have you. So I had a lot of people come out to support me. I, when I've been through this long enough now, when other people go through it, I try to be that person. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to reach out to them. I want to be helpful to them Um, because you just never know, like when something like that's going to happen and it happens a lot. Um, And I ended up back with Warner, like, two weeks after my last day at Roadrunner. So, you know, and, and there is something to be said for that too, because there's a lot of us that have that story that got brought yeah. over because they saw a lot of value. And, and and that is something about Roadrunner, like the things that they did. And a lot of it was throwing us to the wolves and letting us figure it out. But they always kind of gave us like the opportunity to figure it out and to kind of stumble and, guide us a little bit so there are so many of us that Mm. have gone on to do like great things uh in the industry or outside of the industry Mm -hmm. and you know it i'll tell you when i had started at warner in the capacity that i'm in now i don't think it was the president time it was the next one that came in um he pulled me aside and was just like and he had brought in a couple other people from old Roadrunner. So like, there's a whole group of us at Warner that was like, you know, the, you know, the old guard, the, the, the yeah. new old guard, yeah. uh, those last, those last few years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, who, and they were just like, we know Case brought in good people and we know like Jonas brought in good people. And, you know, they always were like Roadrunner people like know their shit. Yeah. And that was something that they were very like, adamant about like you know they knew the talent that was there so if they could figure out a way to bring people over and redistribute that talent they absolutely did <laughs> what, what's your role with Warner now then uh i'm doing uh so i manage all of our spotify business actually so i'm wow. on the digital streaming side yeah wow. uh for for the for the u.s um yeah. i do all of our spotify business and then i also do like some stuff with like uh our international repertoire um making sure it like uh gets released in the u.s is it just certain <laughs> certain brands under warner or is it no, it's everything? everything it's, it's warner ada it is every it is everything so, i feel like i've taken like i feel like i've taken like tens of thousands of dollars worth of warner time <laughs> <laughs> no and I, I, I picked this day for a reason um <laughs> so uh um is it tends to be a little quieter um no, it's don't yeah, let them find that out. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like again, like so many of us, like Rich Perkins, and I know he's been brought up a few times. He's over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Goldberg was over there till recently. Um, it, there's still a few folks over at Roadrunner, like for, from the marketing side, and yeah. uh, you know, one tried and true from the radio promo side, Phil Queso, um, and, and Chris Brown and Susie on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's still some good folks over there. Yeah. Um, and then a whole bunch just in the Warner ecosystem too. Do you think there was anyone who was relieved of what happened in 2012? 
Um, I might've been the only one that was like, you know, got a better <laughs> night's sleep that night. Um, I wouldn't want to speak for somebody else. You know, I can only speak for myself. And I was a little bit just because I knew something was up. Yeah. And I mean, I was certainly like, oh shit, like this has been my career. This is the mm-hmm. only real job. I mean, you know, I had part-time jobs and you know, all that, but like, this was my first real job. So, mm-hmm. you know, when that ended, I was definitely, there was that nervousness, but then I also kind of realized because of the flood of folks like reaching out to me and, you know, the opportunities I had within like two weeks, like, of you know, being able to do interviews and all of that, like, I was like, okay, I think I'll be okay, you know, yeah. and, and this is all right. Um, so yeah, so uh, I was like, I, I will say I like, I felt like I was a little lucky getting out in that first wave, because it was like, yeah, the first bigger wave uh, sure. of it, just because I had that opportunity to kind of be out there and, and, and be looking and all of that. Too. It's a good and, perspective and, though, because a lot of the time, especially cause I'm only scoping myself from 80 through to 2012, because I'm like, that's sort of the period most people are probably familiar with. And I don't want to get sued. So it's, <laughs> no, just keep, keep it to that lot. Um, but in doing so, it kind of sometimes, and I've said this before, especially about Leo, um, there's almost like passive antagonists where you, there's just such an established narrative of like corporations eating other corporations. Everyone looks like the bad guy. It's like, oh, it's not really. It's not really the case. Not at all. So it's good for you to, to sort of expound on that point a little bit, you know? And, so and Leo are so funny because, you know, we continue to work we continued to work together because he was like one of the founders for 300, yeah. which is, you know, another upstart label that he did. And uh, before he left that, but, you know, so I was in this role, I would, he would invite people over to his place to like introduce, you know, artists and like have the DSPs over for like, you know, uh, scones and croissants and <laughs> all that. And it was funny. Cause like, I mean, he was always like super gracious. Um, but it is funny, like, if he found out you were from Roadrunner, it was like you automatically, like, got a, he was like, okay, you've, you're okay. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, there was always that 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 element of, of things with him. So, yeah. um, I felt like there was always a lot of respect from him uh, for Ro- Roadrunner and the brand and, and all of that. Yeah. Well, dude, I think I'm, I'm done in terms of questions. Is there anything I've, I've missed off? Um, unless you wanted to do any of the, uh, the best and worst day stuff or any of, uh, or any of, uh, any oh, of that yeah, stuff. We, sh- we should, yeah, we should do that. Shouldn't we? <laughs> I didn't run out. Oh, I do have one case story too, if you want it. <laughs> oh, let's, do, let's do uh best and worst day and the case okay. story. All right. So, uh, best day. Um, I mean, I already told you Slipknot number one, uh, <laughs> but so I'll, I'll tell you this one because it just made me laugh. Um, and it's actually also a case story, but not the one I was going to tell you. Um, so the first, uh, roadrunner retreat. Um, so again, very green. I legitimately, I think it's been there full time for one week before going up to this thing with the entire company. Um, and everyone was telling me about how there would be this group activity and how competitive cases, uh, the group activity was paintball. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I was just like, okay, I've never played, I've never done paintball before. This will be fun. Right. And so we get in there, we're going like, everybody's like super gung ho. Everybody's being like uber competitive. 
like, you know, and everybody's trying to shoot everybody. And I was just kind of like hunkered down, like uh, behind something. And finally, like somebody like poked up. So I just started like letting loose, letting loose. And then finally, like, I think I got hit. So I stopped <laughs> and everybody was running at me. And I was like, why is everybody running at me? And they're like, stop, stop. I was like, what? And then they're like, dude, not cool. And I was like, what? And they picked Case up and he's just <laughs> covered in paint. Like his whole chest is just covered in paint. And apparently I was just like unloading on him the whole time. And everyone was like, dude, dude, no. And I was like, what? And then he just looks at, he looks over at everybody and he was like, what's the problem? <laughs> like, <is> the game. <laughs> it's like I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna uh, brutalize a Dutch accent, but uh, it was uh, very, very funny of the Dutch accent. Uh, of like, what's the big deal? <laughs> I mean, legitimately, like he had the goggles on, and it was like all like even goggles and stuff. It was, uh, I yeah. So I was just like, oh my god, I'm gonna get fired tomorrow. Uh, but it was. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, obviously the Slipknot number one is probably, you know, also one of, like highly up there, but that was like one of the ones where I, I, I kind of felt like, like, these are good people. Like I ended up in a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what we get to do, uh, as a group. Um, so that was a fun one. And then, uh, and then also I would say, uh, times of grace. I, I took them for a, uh, with Kathy Merritt, we took them to iTunes to perform for them, like a, mm -hmm. do like a little, like uh, introduce the record and they played a couple of songs acoustic or whatever. Yeah. And Adam D was very into really spicy foods. He, he probably still is. Uh, and he was very into a show called man versus food, uh, yeah. which it, it, yeah. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So he was very into the food challenges and he found out that there was a wing spot that was on the show and he wanted to go there and try the wings. <laughs> so like we roll in there, it's me, him, Jesse, um and uh and Kathy and we proceed to get these wings you have to sign a waiver right they caked this sauce you can't even see the wings like and it was just like mud I mean it looked like mud on these wings right <laughs> and we go in there and like so me and Adam are both like looking at each other like in the eyes getting ready to start and then I think Kathy was like watching it and she goes go and like I just start piling i get like i get one done i'm starting the second i look up at adam and he's eating the first one really slowly <laughs> and then he just goes i'm out <laughs> and i proceeded to finish the second one and then i'm like i am out i ran to the soda machine chugged so much soda which does nothing for you you need milk sure. right for that and i mean i drank so much i like i i will not tell you what happened in that bathroom like half an hour later but like it, I, I just loved that I had that experience with Adam so that was a fun as, as much as like uh throwing up was not fun later that was a good day <laughs> that was a lot of fun with those guys <laughs> I think I never got with those places man it was like especially uh, man versus food they'll go out back and it's like oh this is Tommy fucking he's the, he's the head chef here and Tom what's the secret and he goes we never quash the fucking grill it's the Tennessee way. It's like oh, the Tennessee way. Fuck up, you're just lazy. Wash the fucking grill, you bastard. You good. Um, and worst day, I would say, definitely towards the end, just because of the stress levels. I would actually say, like, uh, I think I took a vacation day and they threw a budget meeting on the schedule. And what they were doing is they kept 
moving records that were never going to come. And I was like the person in the meeting that was like, we just need to rip the bandaid. Like, like just take it off. Like, it, like we're not fooling anybody. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like furious, like, and it was like a situation I couldn't even like join. Like, it's not like today where you just like call in for it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I remember I called the finance, our head of finance. And I was just like, you make sure you talk about this. You make sure you talk about this. This has to move. These numbers have to be here. And I'll, he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I could, when I finally got to a place where I could call him, I called him and I was like, how'd it go? And he was like, oh, they changed everything. Like, they totally, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I like, and I feel like maybe from that point to the end was like where I was definitely like, just like stressed all the time. Um, Mm. but yeah like uh so that was not fun like that was uh that was definitely like uh, a point where i just felt like you know i, I didn't have a voice so that that wasn't fun. sure uh okay. yeah you know but yeah. uh but beyond that like you know, it was uh so many good memories there and yeah <laughs> we should i should probably rephrase that question just start with the worst then the best so then yeah yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> you can flip-flop them right <laughs> yeah, yeah I that. <laughs> uh, um, and then uh, so, and then I'll tell you my one case story too. Um, <laughs> the paintball one wasn't the case one. <laughs> no, no. Uh, actually, so, you know, at some point in the letter, and it was probably the best decision I ever made because maybe it bought me an extra year there. Um, our head of international or, or the, the U.S. international lead was, I think, let go at the time. Um, and she had been there a long time. Mm-hmm. Um and I had decided, you know, I'd been doing this a long time. Cantor had been the head of sales forever. That was my next logical step. But at the same time, he wasn't going anywhere, right? Yeah. So I kind of like put it out there, like I should put in for this. So I had talked to uh, the office manager, Kish, uh, about getting time with Case and Jonas. And mm-hmm. I was like, I want to talk about this job. Um, and he's like, okay, I'll get you time with them. And so like Case came in and, you know, I sat down with them and um, it was really the first time I had talked to Case about something like that, like about career aspirations or whatever and all that. And I will tell you, like, you know, told him I want to, you know, I want to be considered for this. And like, he like kind of looked around and then looked at me and he was just like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> he's like, I did international. You know what you get to do with international? You get to do international. Like that's all you ever get to do. <laughs> and he was like, you're in sales. Like you get to do everything. You touch everything. Like, mm. why would you give that up? He's like, I, he's like, I understand you want to grow. And I know that. And, and I'm paraphrasing and he didn't say it exactly like that. But the way I took it was he was very much like you. It's good to know where your aspirations are. Cause that's going to be in the back of my mind now. Right. Like, you know, like he, he was like, I'm not going to let you pigeonhole yourself. from from his perspective right um so i thought that that was really i I definitely left that like i'm like well i certainly don't feel like i wasn't heard and i don't feel like uh yeah you know i'm missing something now if i don't get this right Mm -hmm. um i mean i think he wanted somebody with a very specific skill set for that and he had something else in mind for me and you know flash forward a year you know that was the evolution like they had me come in and, and, and take that over as they started to consolidate things. So mm. I was definitely like, after the bad, I went, glad I had that meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but I, it was kind of my first, I, I mean, I had lots of interactions with Case when he was in New York, but always just kind of like more friendly, like, you know, shooting the shit kind of stuff yeah, or, yeah. you know, in the meetings, like talking about, you know, budgets and numbers and, 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 and all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, it was nice to actually have that, that opportunity with him. Yeah. Um, and I felt like that's been shared a lot <laughs> through, through your podcast. It is, an, it is a story of leadership in it, really. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, everybody, I, I would say, like, between, for as a U.S. employee, between the three folks, like, between Pace, Jonas, and Doug, very different styles between all of them. And I think it actually complemented the staff. In, in a lot of ways like you certainly had you on your toes all the time because <laughs> there's three very unique personalities mm-hmm. uh, but you know a lot a lot different from them. interesting <laughs> yeah.